the time. I didn't really grasp what was happening. I put the pieces together thinking if I was older I would think I was having a stroke. But because of my age, because I'm very fit and healthy, it can't possibly be. So I kept dismissing that thought. I have many cognitive difficulties, some of which I still struggle with today. I still have memory issues and I still struggle with fatigue. I still have to have a sleep every single day, otherwise I become unwell. I lost my speech, sense of taste and smell. My sight and hearing on my right side are weaker. I didn't lose them, but they're weaker. And I lost all feeling and use of my right side. The whole of my right side was turned in. My foot was completely turned in. And I was in a wheelchair. Stroke is hard work. It's a very slow process as well. Initially, we potentially show a quicker visible improvement and then it becomes slower. But with hard work and perseverance, we do keep showing positive signs of recovery. It's very, very humbling and rewarding to think that however small it might be, I'm able and yes, being given the gift to make a slight difference to somebody and to their life. This is Stroke Stories, and I'm Mark Goodyear. In 2016, just over a third of strokes were happening in middle-aged adults. And in the previous nine years, for a man, the average age having a stroke fell from 71 to 68, for a woman from 75 to 73. A stroke is often sudden, and it can be devastating. And while the health services are amazing with diagnosis and treatment, after a stroke, patients sometimes find there aren't enough resources to help them while they recover. So we started Stroke Stories, the podcast, to seek out and to hear from stroke survivors. In this podcast, we hear from Sass Freeman, who suffered two strokes just a few months apart at the age of 45. Prior to my stroke, I was mother of one and living life at a rather hectic pace. I worked doing a couple of jobs. I used to be in advertising in London many years ago, but now living back in Worcestershire, I work for one of my old bosses, but in a different remit, supervising teams, uh, all the junk mail that you get through the post and everybody hates, supervising the teams all across the country that deliver that. And then basically when it goes wrong because I've not delivered troubleshooting and finding out why and, and trying to pacify the client. But alongside that, I was doing modelling work and television work. So as I came off air early hours of the morning, then I would be driving off to the next job. So actually, when I had my stroke, I was really very fortunate in that I had just travelled back from London and I was at home. I could have been either driving or in a hotel room on my own. I've had two strokes. The first one I remember really vividly, which is not uncommon the more I speak to people, but naively at the time, I didn't really grasp what was happening. I put the pieces together thinking 
if I was older, I would think I was having a stroke. But because of my age, because I'm very fit and healthy, it can't possibly be. So I kept dismissing that thought. But I had an incredibly strong pain in one small area of my head, like I'd never had before. And I wasn't a stranger to migraines, so it wasn't like a migraine. I couldn't get rid of that pain, but I just thought I'd go to work late that day and I would try and get rid of it. But as time went on, I knew that I couldn't, it was impossible. So other symptoms started to occur. And we had um, Little Whippet at the time, who sadly we no longer have and actually lost her to a stroke. But she has never ever barked in her life. And this particular day, she did. As the symptoms continued, I thought I really do need to get some help. Everybody I contacted that day was out. There was just nobody locally to contact. So I called my GPs. I was told that I couldn't have an appointment. I, I couldn't go in, they were busy. I couldn't speak to my doctor, he was busy. And so they wouldn't do a ring back, which is very unusual. So I thought, well, I'll just rest and it will go away. I obviously lost consciousness and our dog barked and barked and I kept coming in and out of consciousness. I tried the call again to the doctors. Eventually, having tried that a few times, I realised and caught sight of myself that my face had dropped, my eye was weeping and I was stumbling at that point. I was then told if I could get to the doctors in half an hour, I could be seen. And I am ashamed to say that out of absolute desperation, urgency and thinking it could not be a stroke because I'm far too young and fit and healthy, somehow an automatic car with one hand, I got into it and I drove. To this day now, from that point, I cannot remember the rest. I remember all of that vividly, but I cannot remember how or where I left the car. It turns out unlocked and door open, as you'd imagine. But I cannot remember that bit. I can't remember driving. I can't remember how or where I left it. And I cannot remember how I got into the doctors. Fortunately, there was a doctor who was there from the hospital due to an emergency who knew immediately what the situation was. And so, yes, it was diagnosed. She called through to the hospital. And from then on, the care was very different. Everyone was expecting me and waiting for me to go straight to have my scan. But obviously, because of the delayed help, I was left with many disabilities. Sas spent a month in hospital, and her first stroke left her facing a long period of recovery. I have many cognitive difficulties, some of which I still struggle with today. I still have memory issues, and I still struggle with fatigue. I still have to have a sleep every single day, otherwise I become unwell. I lost my speech, sense of taste and smell. My sight and hearing on my right side are weaker. I didn't lose them, but they're weaker. And I lost all feeling and use of my right side. The whole of my right side was turned in. My foot was completely turned in. And I was in a wheelchair. I now walk with the help of a stick and a functional electronic stimulator, which I hide so that I try to look as though I'm walking less aided, really. That's just me. A lot of people don't have to do that, but, but I prefer to. It was quite a quick succession between my two strokes. 
I just remember I was then at home when I had help coming to the house. I still had to have absolutely everything done for me. I had nurses, OTs and physios coming to the house every single day. And when I'd been washed, dressed and fed, I would fall asleep again. So I was at that stage, so I couldn't really remember anything. And one of the people that had come to do some sort of therapy with me that day had identified exactly what it was. I just knew that I was really unwell, but I don't have any vivid memory of anything like the previous one. And she identified immediately, called the paramedics, and I had the first response people coming out and treating me, and then I was blue-lighted in. So a very, very different situation to the first. And because of that, I didn't have any lasting damage from my second stroke. I didn't go straight back home, and I wasn't in for as long as the first time. Perhaps a couple of weeks, I, I can't quite remember. And then the care at home just started all over again. And because of that, they didn't have to keep me in any longer than necessarily, because I knew that they knew I was going home to that care. After returning home, a care plan was put in place. It was thought that because of my age, I was so much younger, and I'd been so fit and healthy prior to my stroke, I was going to have far better chance of recovery by having a care plan of that degree at home than going to another environment. And actually I was too young for a care home kind of environment. And the rehab ward that's as a brilliant stroke rehab ward now available in Worcestershire, but it was just before that had opened, otherwise I would have gone there. So my care plan involved nurses coming out and OT and physio every single day working with me on the things that I could somehow manage within the mental capacity as well I had because of all the cognitive fatigue. Stroke is hard work. It's a very slow process as well. Initially, we potentially show a quicker visible improvement and then it becomes slower but with hard work and perseverance we do keep showing positive signs of recovery and I believe that working with that belief hard work neuroplasticity which we now know really is powerful it does work we don't stop recovering it just is slower and smaller chunks we're never who we used to be we are a new version of ourselves and we do need to sort of accept that. But that doesn't mean it's bad. We can still live a very full and happy life and with the family, we, it's just a slightly different shape. After both her strokes, Sass realised the extent to which her illness affected those around her. It's very, very difficult and I think in many ways it's probably harder for my family because... Nothing was actually explained to them, and they're not unusual in that. Obviously, when we go in, and if it's a big stroke, fortunately, all the medical staff are just attending to us and keeping us alive, looking after us, and, and doing everything that's required. So there isn't the capacity or the, the time, the manpower, for anyone to really take aside, certainly the children of the family, but the family members to explain exactly what a stroke is, what has happened, 
what to expect when their relative returns home. There isn't anything really in place to do that and to prepare the families for what's to come. I'm now part of a family education group in Worcestershire on the rehab ward and we do actually work with families to do exactly that because for my family and for my son it was really devastating because not only was our our life as a family changed forever overnight but for my son for instance well at the age he was he was doing his GCSEs but also he had to suddenly become a carer and then at school he had to be the child again so he had to take on two very different roles and because he didn't understand what had happened no one had explained it to him he couldn't explain to anyone else what had happened so it was much easier to if you like live a lie and just pretend everything was okay but then that proves difficult because ordinarily he'd have had his friends to stay and they would start to question why was that not happening anymore? Why was he no longer doing the things that they would have done? Why was I not watching rugby matches that perhaps I could have watched or cricket matches? And there's all these changes that people are noticing that of course he's so desperately trying to hide as well as cope with everything. For my partner, he's trying to suddenly be both parents and hold down a job they're having to do all of those things and then there's visiting time when I'm still on the ward and then somewhere within all of that they've got to get back, eat and start all over again. And this is what the families are doing but not knowing when that safety blanket's taken away, how do they cope? What are they dealing with? What I hadn't realised, it's friends too because they are affected and they don't always know how to cope and what to expect and how to help us and how to look after us. Mm. And sometimes we find that our friends change. The ones, you know, the real ones are always there. They're always there for us and they really come up trumps and help us. But sometimes we also notice that ones we thought were friends vanish. And as stroke survivors, when we're already feeling vulnerable, we do take that to heart too much. We focus on that too much, and I certainly did. I know that I was a victim of that. I wasted far too much time and energy and emotion on it. And I now kind of think that a way that we could deal with it is that life's a little bit like a play. You know, some people are in it for the whole thing and some are just extras and maybe if we can view it that way it doesn't hurt so much. It's their difficulty because they don't know, they don't understand and they, they don't know how to approach us and perhaps they're just nervous of, of upsetting us, particularly when it's cognitive issues because often with stroke, depending on the area of the brain that's damaged, we can behave very differently and unexpectedly and they don't know how to react to that and so it's easier to avoid us than to perhaps behave wrongly. Having two strokes meant that she twice had to start over again. However, from the very beginning she had the full support and encouragement of her family and her own determination to work through recovery. 
Still to come on this episode of Stroke Stories, Sass explains how she decided to start writing down her experience of stroke. I did look for help and, and I realised that there was just very little, um, if, if anything at all. And this is how I really started my book and how my passion has developed. But it is now how I have um, connected with more people. And she reveals a major goal that she still hopes to achieve. Well, I'd love to be able to drive so that I don't have to keep asking for help and please can you take me here and please can you take me there. It's been really, really difficult for me because I was, as I'd said before, I'm so, so independent. And to actually have to ask for help is one of the hardest lessons to learn. Let's hear how, after her strokes, Sass searched for advice and guidance. I had gone from someone who was incredibly fit and independent, stubborn as well, I suppose. And suddenly, there I was, having to have absolutely everything done for me, relying on people for absolutely everything. And I was... um, led to believe that that was pretty much how life was going to be. And don't get me wrong, I had tremendous help and support in hospital and the aftercare at home was excellent. But unfortunately, as we know, due to funding, that has a limit on it and then it stops. And suddenly when that stops... There's absolutely nothing. There's nowhere to go, no one to turn to, and that is when it's terrifying. And it's exactly the same for the family members. You just do not know where to go, who to ask advice of, and what to do. Fortunately, I think that's where being stubborn helped me, because I'm not ashamed to say I did reach rock bottom. I was told that that's as good as it was going to get and those devastating words actually hadn't left me. But they did become my saving, if you like, because I realised, having reached rock bottom, that if I didn't do something, whatever that something might be, that really was as good as it was going to get. It's not down to me, but I think the fact that I have a son who was about to learn to drive and I could not even be in the car because my licence has been removed, you know, sitting next to him, let alone help him now. This is another big first and I couldn't be there. I, I felt completely useless, redundant. I had to change things somehow. So in absolute desperation, I tried anything and everything to try and improve. All the wrong things, but absolutely anything and everything. And so I kind of stumbled my way forward and I was learning to read at the time because I had to learn again and with one finger on my non-dominant hand I started what effectively was a brain dump because I wasn't capable of reading anything at the time, putting things down of what I was doing and a way forward which later became my book, Two Strokes Not Out. And that's eventually led to an absolute passion to help as many people as possible, both stroke survivors and families. So I do sell it and I donate some funds to raise greater awareness of stroke and to prevent the ones that can be prevented, particularly as the more and more strokes in younger people. And we now know of all the ones that can be prevented 
a classic being AF related ones. But I have also, because a high percentage of us, myself included, lose our income and the ability to drive, I've made it a free audio download. That's available now on the NHS Stroke website in Worcestershire, on my own website, which I use as a platform to blog to help other stroke survivors, and I now mentor stroke survivors, but also on a site signed against stroke, and they help survivors. They have advice out there for the survivors and the families, and they have some stories, again, of of stroke survivors, so people can relate to that. There's another charity that's actually London-based, but they do go out to other hospitals. The more funding they have, the more hospitals they can go to. And they're in Birmingham, and they're just now venturing out to Cardiff, and that's Interact. And they go on towards and read to stroke survivors, and there is evidence to support how this helps survivors, both mentally as well as with their speech. I did look for help and, and I realised that there was just very little, um, if, if anything at all. And this is how I really started my book and how my passion has developed. But it is now how I have um, connected with more people and I'm still pretty useless on anything to do with technology, if I'm honest. But I do, with help post my blog so that I can help survivors and I do use it to be able to help mentor people and that's actually all over the world so it isn't just a UK thing that this situation arises and I use Twitter Uh, I do actually manage that there's lots of it that I don't understand but I'm able to use it and connect with people sufficiently I stick to just Twitter because I can understand that, I can manage that and I can cope with it. I haven't ventured on Facebook and I don't intend to because I don't feel I could cope with anything else that I would do properly. Despite not being able to go back to work at the moment, Sass still hopes she'll be able to return to it in the future. I haven't returned to work. I would love to be able to return to work. It is my absolute longing. I'd love to be able to do that. But sadly, I still struggle hugely with neurofatigue. So everything I do, I have to be mindful of that and I have to work around it. So if I go and do any talks for anyone, I'm doing any of my volunteering roles, I have to factor asleep into my day every day. I used to be a morning person. I'd get up at the crack of dawn. I would have gone out riding before I went off to work. But now I have to start my day late and slowly because my brain will not allow me to do it any other way. I really, really dislike that, despise it, but it's how I am now and I cannot change that. Try as I might, that's me now and that's what I have to work around. So any roles I do, I have to work within those remits I haven't actually been anywhere on my own either because I do have memory issues. So I probably would get lost, go the wrong way and and have mishaps. So I probably am not really of any value to anyone. And I, I couldn't do consecutive days. So I couldn't say that I could do X amount of hours each day. So I don't really fit a sensible pattern that, could work into a company, sadly. 
I have tried to think of all permutations so that I could appear attractive to a company, believe me, because there's nothing I'd love more than mentally think I've ticked another box and return to work. With stroke, we have a choice. We can become the victim or we can just think, how can we turn this around and what positives can we get out of this? And I'm very fortunate that I've been able to do that. And she explains how the stroke continues to impact her life, both good and bad. Obviously, for myself and for my family, I wish I'd never had a stroke. Of course I do. But then, aside from that, I loved my work before. I really enjoyed it. I had lots of fun. If I went to work or not, it didn't make any difference to anyone's life. Nobody would really notice, because someone else could have stepped in and done what I, I did previously. But now, following stroke, it's given me the gift of being able to help people and... I've met some amazing people. It's very, very humbling and rewarding to think that however small it might be, I'm able and yes, being given the gift to make a slight difference to somebody and to their life. I just want to continue getting better. Well, I'd love to be able to drive so that I don't have to keep asking for help and please can you take me here and please can you take me there. It's been really, really difficult for me because I was, as I'd said before, I'm so, so independent and to actually have to ask for help is one of the hardest lessons to learn and so it still isn't easy now, nine years on. So I would just love to have that independence back which would also give me a certain amount of spontaneity back in my life. You know, friends say, oh, you know, suggest doing something, but that's okay when you you can drive as well, because you can say, shall we do X, because you can also offer to drive. But when you're always the one that has to be collected, taken home again, and uh, you don't do these things. You're always the one that needs the help, needs things carrying for them, needs help with everything. So... I'd love, yes, to have my licence back and be able to drive. Finally, Sass believes that survivors should be kinder to themselves after their stroke. I would say to stroke survivors, don't be hard on yourself. It probably sounds very silly if they're listening to this very early on after stroke, but it's something that we do do. We, we're often sort of saying, oh, but I can't do this, I can't do that. I would say always focus on the things that you can do as much as possible rather than the things that you can't do and this is to families as well set small achievable goals and targets for the stroke survivor and for you as a family once the stroke survivors back home so that you're trying to get some normality back in the family again and once that goal's achieved celebrate it and try and bring some fun back because Otherwise, if we're not careful, it's all about focusing on what we can't do and then trying to do this, trying to do that. And we don't stop and think, okay, we've achieved that now. That's amazing. We're just always looking ahead and and not recognising what we have achieved. And neurofatigue is 
a huge thing. I fought it for far too long. I would just say, don't fight it. If a battery's low or flat, we don't think twice about plugging our computer back in to recharge the batteries. So where's the harm in viewing it like that and just having a sleep? And I would say to the family members, don't refuse any help, any help that's offered at all. It's not weak accepting help, it's actually strong because by accepting help and having time for yourself, it means you then can look after yourself, which makes you a stronger, better version of yourself. And then you have some better quality time as a family when you're back together again. The seriousness of Sass's first stroke and the timing of her second meant her road to recovery was long and at times very difficult. However, she is making the most of her experiences as a stroke survivor and is dedicating her time to helping others via her blog, her talks, her mentoring scheme and her book called Two Strokes, Not Out. If you're listening to Stroke Stories, the podcast, and have had a stroke or somebody close to you has, and you'd like to learn more, search for the Stroke Association online and for a dedicated webpage, search NHS Strokes. And if you're listening to the podcast on iTunes, please subscribe and rate and comment because it helps us spread the word. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thanks for listening. <laughs>